Uh, before we begin here, uh, I, I want you to know, uh, as some of you are concerned, am I going to go off and do another Pentecostal riff today? I am not going to do that today. So relax. Those of you who are really concerned, you're just not here today, so it doesn't matter at all. But uh, I'm not going to do that. Uh, but I am excited for us to look at Nehemiah 3. Now, let me, uh, let me tell you, one of my spiritual gifts, I think it's a gift, not everyone does, is that um, I can read a really long and boring chapter and not care if everyone else is bored to tears. It just doesn't bother me. In fact, I kind of like it. Uh, but I have to admit that even I, as I looked at this chapter and I thought, oh, wow, this is really long. Even I have decided to shorten this, but only a little bit. Uh, um, so uh, it's going to feel long to you, but it could be worse. So let's hear from Nehemiah 3. Nehemiah writes this. Then the high priest, Eliashib, set to work with his fellow priest and rebuilt the sheep gate. This is all about rebuilding the wall. And they consecrated it and set up its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. And the men of Jericho built next to him. And then next to them, Zachar, son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Next to them, Merimah, son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, son of Bana, made repairs. Next to them, the Tikkoites made repairs. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work for, of their lord. Joida, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Basodia, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Next to them, repairs were made by Melatia, the Gibeonite, and Jaden, the Maronitite, the men of Gibeon, and of Mitzpah, who were under the jurisdiction of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, son of Herariah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, son of Harumah, made repairs opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, son of Hashabaniah, made repairs. Malkijah, son of Haram, and Hashab, son of Pethab, Moab, repaired another section in the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, son of Halohish, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. He and his daughters... After him, the Levites made repairs. Rahum, son of Bani, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, made repairs for his district. After him, their kin made repairs. Benui, son of Hanadad, ruler of half the district of Keilah, next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mitzpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the angle. After him, Baruch, son of Zabbai, repaired another section from the angle to the door of the house of the high priest Eliashib. Palau, son of Uzai, repaired opposite the angle and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, made repairs up to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each one opposite of his own house. After them, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, son of Shekaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. After him, Hananiah, son 
son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, sixth son of Zelaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, son of Barakiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. After him, Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate. And to the upper room of the corner, and between the upper room of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, we know that you give life to us and that you have breathed life into us through your scripture. Sometimes, quite honestly, it may be hard to understand exactly how that breathes life into us. But I pray that through your spirit that we might understand how this third chapter speaks to us here in Zionsville, in Carmel, in Indianapolis. That we may grow closer to you and to fulfilling the mission and the vision that you have given to us. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. And amen. All right. So, after reading Nehemiah 3, my guess is it has become crystal clear to you, as it has to me, why there are not that many pastors who want to preach through Nehemiah. I mean, this is not an easy chapter to read or to preach on, quite frankly. You know, Nehemiah could have just said... People rebuilt the wall and then moved on. But he didn't, did he? Oh, no, he began to describe who exactly it was and how they were kin to whomever and what section they decided to do and how, uh, well, not how long it took, but uh, what vocations some of them were. He went on and on. Nehemiah, it seems, is one of those guys that you never want to be on a committee that you serve on because they always somehow miraculously find a way to describe something in 10,000 words that could easily be described in 10, right? He's a bit like a preacher, quite frankly, right? I mean, we could just cut to the, you know, cut to the chase, but what's the fun of that, right? So, so what do you do with something like Nehemiah 3? Because as I kept looking over the passage this week, and it just felt so laborious. It was a work to try to read this passage again and again, as I'm certain it was a work to try to listen to this passage read. And as I began to think about that, it reminded me a bit of what we call an onomatopoeia. You remember onomatopoeias, right? Those words that sound like whatever it is they are trying to describe. Words like, like murmur or squirt or gurgle. You know, these kinds of words. And I was realizing in many ways, perhaps, if Nehemiah would have just said, hey, we had this vision, hey, the wall was rebuilt, and then we moved on, we would have thought... Well, that seemed easy, but Nehemiah doesn't. Instead, what he begins to do is he begins to describe in great detail every facet of what it took to 
actually have the vision be fulfilled. Remember last week, we talked about the fact that Nehemiah did this great job. of He was this visionary, but he was also pragmatic, and he held those two things. But here, perhaps what is the greatest of all the miracles in Nehemiah is the fact that he had this great vision, this great plan, and then people actually did the work to help that vision and that plan come to fruition. That is no small feat. I mean, how many times have you been a part of a discussion where people said, you know what we should do? What? Well, we should do such and such. And everyone says, oh, that's a great idea. Let's do such and such. This is wonderful. When are we going to do it? We're going to do it in a week. All right, next Tuesday, we're going to do such and such. This is great. And then what happens during the week? Well, if you were heading things up, what happens is that throughout the week, you get an email, you get a text, maybe you get a phone call from the whole group, one by one, who says, well, you know, I forgot I have this. Or, you know, now that I think about it, I'm just too busy to do that. Or I kind of, you know what, I'm sorry. Maybe next time I want to do it. So that by the time you actually arrive at next Tuesday, it's just you and that one person you don't really like that much who are there to do whatever it is. Right? We, we, we like to talk about things a bit more than we usually like to actually do them. Right? Churches are notorious for this. I talk to a lot of my pastor friends. This has never occurred to me, of course, but to a lot of my pastor friends. And one of the things that happens is when you first get to a church, there's a lot of people who want to have meetings with you. And usually those meetings are about, hey, here are some, some things need to change. We need, we need to change some things. This place is dying on the vine. And, you know, the previous pastor just kind of was bad. Well, we, we know that you are really good. And you are going to change things. And, and so we're really excited about that. And so you say, okay, all right. They're telling me that they want to change some things, okay. And, and usually the change takes too long, right. And the people are like, hey, come on. When are you going to make some changes? And okay, okay. So the church leadership gets together and say, okay, all right. Yeah, yeah, okay. So then they have a big announcement. Okay, we know what we're going to do. We are going to change some things. Oh, great, great. What are you going to change? We're going to change this. Oh, no. That's a horrible idea. Why would you change that? Okay, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're right. right. So we're going to change this. Oh, that's even worse than your first idea. So then you just kind of keep kind of softening things, right? Maybe you were going to change the time of worship, right? This always caused problems. And so you were going to change it to, from 9 to 9.30. And oh, no, I mean, this has just it got in the way of people's brunches and their golf game, the football game, whatever else it may be. No, no, no. no, no. So finally then you say, okay, we're just going to change it from 9 o'clock to 9.05. Oh, it's not a great idea. But if you have to, fine, we will make that change. Right? Here's the reality. We love talking. We love the idea of doing something much more than we actually ever like really doing something. And so when Nehemiah begins to describe how this vision and how everyone had said, let's do it, and then they actually did it and the work that it took to see it done, that should overwhelm us with the weight of what just happened. We should want to give God praise for the reality that finally this mission and vision was going to occur and actually happened. Now here's the other thing about the way in which 
Nehemiah, and you have to pay attention to catch all of this, but the way that Nehemiah describes this, which is that it's clear that Nehemiah, for this building, for this wall to actually be rebuilt, it was going to take the work of everyone. Right? Nehemiah begins to describe this. He starts off by saying um, uh, that Eliashib, uh, the high priest, that the priest built a particular section of the wall. Now, commentators like to say, well, you know, commentators, you, by the way, are usually like pastors or they work in seminaries. You know, the reason why they started off with the priest was because they're so important and critical to the city. I think they started off by that because he wanted to be very clear. This section of the wall was built by a group of pastors. You might want to steer clear of that section of the wall. I mean, if Pastor Scott or I built anything, do not get near it. It would not last, right? But somehow he did it. They did that. That's great. Okay. But then there were other ones that were mentioned, right? There were, uh, let's see, a perfumist, uh, a goldsmith, a merchant. It's very interesting because those aren't people you would necessarily think, oh, well, that's the perfect person to help rebuild a wall. Where are the bricklayers? Where are the construction men and women? Where are those people? They're not mentioned at all, which is this great reminder of something that we talk about but is still easily forgotten which is the fact that usually when it comes to the flourishing of the church, when it comes to fulfilling the mission of God, we usually like to think that the people who really do that, who do it best, are the paid professionals, right? The pastors, the church staff, those people who are just more, I don't know, naturally religious. That's not really for us. But what we see is that that's not the case in Nehemiah. It's not the case at all. It wasn't the construction people, the bricklayers. It was everyone who has any kind of gift, which means it was everyone, because all of you have a gift or a talent. But we usually don't think about the gifts and talents that we have as being able to fulfill the mission of God in any great way. I was thinking about this on, on Friday. Friday, uh, Scott and I had lunch with Philana and with uh, Haney and Mona, and we were talking about um, 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 the mission work there. And, and, and one of the things that Hanny and Mona said um, was that, well, they really appreciate, I hope this is okay to share anything is good. Sure, thank you. All right, so, so one of the things they said was, we really love, love it when, when, when short-term mission, work come, mission folks come from ZPC. You know, and I was like, well, you know, well, why, why is that? Said, well, because they are so, get ready for the spiritual word, you ready? organized <laughs> right they're so organized which means right and we think oh organized well which means though that they don't have to spend hours when they want to be engaging in the ministry to which God has called them trying to kind of figure out all the itinerary and figure out all these things where are they going to stay and all those things no when we come it tends to be that we come there and we are ready right we've already figured those things out a so that we can then just engage right into the ministry b so that people like Hanny and Mona can can kind of continue to engage in what it is that they're doing. And as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of, of when I went to Uganda. There were no pictures of me. I'm going to talk to Sally about this. I was actually in Uganda. I want you to know that. But, but, but when we were there and the fact that, that, that one of those folks said, man, you guys are so 
organized. It's crazy, right? And I thought, well, here's the thing, right? Organization is something we don't talk about. Now, I get it. When I talk about organization, that does not make a sermon sore. People aren't jumping up and being like, "Woo, organization. But I also want you to know, without organization, right, the mission of God suffers. I think about our own staff. I think about Lisa Price, and I think about uh, Nancy Baker and Becky Woods, right? When, when, when they're not around, we, I suffer, right? But their ability to do those things is remarkable, right? And that's not something we usually think about. So one of the things that you need to wrestle with is this, that even if you don't think you have a stereotypical, churchy kind of gift or talent, there is something for you to do to be a part of this greater mission of God. And sometimes we have to keep saying that because so many of you don't actually believe me. Now there's another interesting thing about the fact that they had these goldsmiths and merchants and priests and perfumists who were doing this, which is that, of course, this is not within their bailiwick. I always like, anytime you can use bailiwick in a sermon, you should. This is not within their kind of normal mode, right? And one of the great things about being in a church as a pastor is I get to see people who do one thing Monday through Friday, but yet when it's the work of the church, they do something remarkably different, right? I, I love the fact, that I'll explain, uh, uh, when you have people People who are, who, who are very successful, right, successful in the business world or the political world, or, or, world or, or in social service or whatever else it may be. And then you see them on a Sunday morning and they're like burping some baby in a nursery that they don't even know, right? Or, 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 or they're out there and they're like they're serving food to the homeless or they're, they're building a house in Mexico. And you, you know this is not normally what they do, right? They're very successful in the world, but yet they're, they're kind of serving. It's this reminder, I think, that if the vision and the mission is large enough, then it calls all of us to do something to use our own gifts and talents and even to push beyond those things. As I thought about this, I was reminded of a gentleman. You guys know who this is. Most, many of you do. I won't say his name. but um, We have a great banquet coming up next weekend. And every Sunday morning of a great banquet, I always know when I get here around 7 o'clock that there's going to be a gentleman here, a gentleman who is very successful uh, in his own world and has his own company. I don't know how big it is, but it's, 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 it's fairly sizable. He's done very well. And I always know three things on a Friday morning or a Sunday morning, which is one, he's going to be here. Two, he's going to wear uh, this ridiculous Northwestern University shirt or sweatshirt, purple. It's just not a good color. Sorry, Brownsburg. It's just not a good color, right? For a, sure. Anyways, he's going to be wearing that. And here's what else I know, is that he is going to be working like a dog. He's going to have been taking down all of these beds. He's going to have been moving around chairs. He's going to be vacuuming. And I want you to know that every time, I'm not kidding, every time I see this gentleman, this, this very successful person, and he's there, and he's sweating, and he's vacuuming, it is an incredible encouragement to my faith. You know why he's doing that? Because he so believes in the mission of what they are doing. He has been changed by Jesus Christ. And because of that, he is willing to do almost anything to be able to do this sort of thing. He is willing to vacuum. He's willing to clean up a bathroom. He's willing to do whatever. And whenever I see that, I am so encouraged. And quite frankly, it's a good reminder to me 
of the fact that sometimes if I get to the place where I'm like, well, you know, I'm the senior pastor. I shouldn't move that chair. I'm like, shh, be quiet. That's what I say. Be quiet. That is ridiculous that all of us are called, no matter what, when the vision is big enough and clear enough, we will be called to do almost anything for the glory of God. Now, I want to be clear here. But Nehemiah in Nehemiah 3 is not writing out a fairy tale. One of the things I really appreciate is the fact that he's honest that not everybody joined in. I made sure to include in here what he says, which is that the Tekoites, while they may have worked, the nobles men and noble women, the nobles did not actually join in. Literally what he says is they did not bring their necks, that's a great line, in service of the Lord. They did not bring their necks in service of the Lord. Not everybody is going to join in to whatever the mission is. So people wonder, well, why didn't they? If the Tikoites did it, why didn't their nobles people? Why did they not do this? And nobody knows for sure. Nehemiah doesn't say. But let me tell you what the leading theory is, which is that the Tikoites didn't actually live within the walls of Jerusalem or even that close. I think they were around 12 miles, something like that, away. And they were very close to Geshem the Arab. You remember Geshem the Arab? We talked about him last week. We'll talk about him again in the future. He was not pleased at all with the fact that they were rebuilding this wall. And so what folks think is there's a great chance that the reason why the nobles did not join in is because they were afraid if they did so that Geshem would be angry with them. And if he was angry with them, they were far away from those walls, which meant there was a good chance that they would attack them. And as I thought about that, I thought to myself, you know what, you got to be straight up with this. That's a really good excuse. I mean, who here wants to be attacked? Not very many of us, right? Most of us don't want to be attacked. Most of us don't want to die. And so you could kind of see it. And as I thought about that, I was like, wow, that's a really good excuse. Well done, nobles people. That's a good excuse. But here's what I also know, which is that because of the fact that they said no to that, they missed out on the opportunity to join in to this remarkable mission. They missed out on being able to participate in what God is doing. They missed out on being able to do something that no one thought they would ever be able to do. They missed out on being a part of something that was going to change lives forever. They missed out on being a part of something that was much larger than them. Did they have a good excuse? Absolutely. It was a great excuse, but it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, because they decided to give in to that good excuse, they still missed out on doing what God had called them to do. They missed out on participating in this grander mission. And as I thought about that, I realized that the reality is that's also true for many of us. 
You see, I tend to think, I get to hear this a lot because I'm a pastor and it's just what happens, but I tend to think that there are a lot of us who kind of think, well, you know what, I'm going to get more involved. I'm going to be a little bit more a part of, of this. Maybe it's Great Banquet. Maybe it's a home group. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's working straight up. Maybe it's, it's giving, you know, I'm going to start giving more. I'm going to start being more generous, whatever it may be. And so many of us say, we are totally going to do this as soon as we have more time, as soon as we have more money, then we will start to give of our time and our talent and our treasure. As soon as we have that, that's when we're going to start. And the thing is, you're right. You may not be have tons of extra money. You may not have tons of extra time. These are all great excuses. But ultimately what happens is when we decide to give in to those excuses time after time, you miss out on remarkable opportunities. And I have seen far too many people who have decided to keep waiting and waiting and waiting and they end up at some point realizing as they look back that they missed incredible opportunities to be a part of what God is doing. I love this little phrase. I'm sure you've heard it. We can either put it up or not. I don't remember if I gave it to you. There it is. That today is a tomorrow you talked about yesterday. Today is the tomorrow that you talked about yesterday. Does that make sense? In other words, that if you keep waiting, right? And I love this other line that just says, tomorrow will wish you had started today. That there will always be times. Maybe they said, you know what, as soon as Geshem, when, as soon as he goes out of town, then we're going to go and help out with the wall. Then we're going to go and do that. But we have to wait for a little while. It's just not quite time yet. Now, here's one of the things I know that happens whenever I talk about something like this. Which is that usually about 90% of the people that hear it are the people who are already massively engaged in doing things, right? This is one of the great things in this, in this, in this passage is that um, I think it's only the Tekoites. You can read through it to see, verify, or tell me that I'm wrong. Who are actually working on two different sections of the wall. In other words, the theory goes that because of the fact that the noble people weren't there, the Tekoites who were already there decided they better take up a whole other section of the wall as well in order to try to make up for the fact that their noble people were not there. Right? Usually the people who are hearing this are the people who are already working on 999 sections of the wall. And when I say something like this, they're like, you know what, he's probably right. We should work on a thousand sections of the wall. What's wrong with us? Come on. I am not here For those of you who are already wholly invested and are making sacrifices, I am not, for this particular section, I am not talking to you. I'm not asking you to give me yet one more hour. I want you to have space for your family, to have space for you and Christ, to have space to love your neighbor. I want you to have space to do all of that. I am talking to those of us who by and large come in on Sunday morning and go out on Sunday morning, and that's about as, 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 as much as we are involved. I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty. I have no desire to do that. That doesn't benefit anyone or anything. What I am suggesting is you have a great opportunity to be a part of something that is much 
larger than just coming in and going out. And while that may be a blessing to you, I want you to know there is an even larger blessing that comes from investing and sacrificing for the furthering of God's mission. See, one of the things that we see is that that's another thing that Nehemiah 3 does. See, Nehemiah 3, John Golden Gay says this. He says, he says, look at this passage. He goes, I think that this passage, yes, it's written absolutely for, for, for us to kind of understand this, but to know exactly how hard it was, that everybody was included, everybody was involved, everybody had something to offer. But I also think it was written down like that for the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of those who built that wall. In other words, that as they begin to read this, they begin to see, whoa, 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 whoa. That was grandpa that did this. And that, that was great grandma. She's one of the daughters. She was the one, she participated in what was going on. In other words, that this is all written out so that the future generations can look back and remember to whom they owe their own security, to whom they owe the community, to whom they owe this joy of being able to live in this city that they wouldn't have been able to do if someone, generation or two or three before, had not done something to build it up and get it ready for them. See, I love this part of the story because it is this firm reminder to me of this, that we cannot just be asking, well, how is what we're doing right now helping us remember the church is only the church when it exists for others? That we can be asking, how is what we're doing now, how is it helping those who are yet to come? Again, one of the great things I love about the guy I was talking about earlier with Great Banquet is, I don't know, I didn't ask him, but my guess is he doesn't know 90 or 95% of the guests who are there on that weekend. But he's still vacuuming for them. He's still moving chairs for them. He's still praying for them, as all of us are doing. They're doing that work for these people that they don't yet know in the hopes and prayers that the Lord is going to work through them. Or I was thinking about, I, was, I had a wedding yesterday afternoon or evening. And, you know, I love... Yeah, this is true. I love weddings. I, I was trying to think through. I want to be, always be honest. I love most weddings, right? Sometimes weddings are not great. I love most weddings. This was a great wedding. This was uh, Christy and Todd Tharp, if you know them, that was their son. So tell them I said I love the wedding, okay? So, but one of the things, this is really one of the gifts of being a pastor. One of the things that I get to do uh, is I get to stand here, you know, and I wasn't here, but I get to stand here, and I get to watch the bride come down. Right? Most folks only get like maybe one or two chances ever to do that. I get to, I get to be here. I've been here multiple times. I don't know how many times. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not very organized. I don't keep these things. It's not a spiritual gift. But I'm guessing 50, 60 weddings, something like that, where I get to stand here and I get to see the bride come down. Right? And, and so there's always three thoughts that go in my mind whenever that's happening. The first thought is, Jerry, do not mess this up. Right? Do not mess this up. That's just the truth. It's like, man, don't, I mean, I just, I want to not even be remembered who it was who did the wedding, right? Just don't mess it up. The second thing is, I'm always remembering what was almost what was all over 13 years ago now when Megan came down that aisle. And, and when I was here and I got to see her. 
But the third thing, and this is actually increasing now, and I, I just talked to Meg about this last night, is I think about my daughters. And I think, wow, someday they're going to be walking down that aisle. And when I think about that, it immediately makes me want to ask, what am I doing today to prepare them for that day in the future? It's going to be too late in 45 years when the first one gets married. It's going to be... It's going to be too late then for me to say, how do you want to parent her? What do you want to build into her? How do you want to challenge her? How do you want to encourage her? How do you want to help shape her into who she is becoming? It's going to be too late then. I can't wait till then. It takes investment and sacrifice and all of those things right now for us to do that. This is the time to be asking the question of what kind of legacy am I leaving for those who are coming up next? This is the time to do it. Not in the future. It is the time now. And as they're sitting there, these people are moving that wall. They're putting up the brick after brick. And they're probably wondering, is anybody else doing this? Is this thing going to last? Are the, are the, are the, is, are the persons going to come and attack it? Is Geshem going to come and just roll it down? Does it even matter? What they had no idea of is as they kept doing that little by little by little, that people from Thousands of years later are going to be reading about what they did. This is why, how we invest. We have to invest in everyone, but we especially have to invest in our young and in those who are not yet here. And so I just want to say quickly, thank you. I want to thank you all for the ways that you invest in our young people, for the ways in which you invest by giving of your time, for the ways that you invest by giving in your money so that we can have programs and that we can have space for them. I mean, we invest even in, in helping with child care for home groups. We have a new home group that has uh, 11 adults and 14 children under the age of six. And two of the women are pregnant. I mean, holy cow. But you know what? They're being shaped. And we're investing in the parents. We're investing in the children. Why? Because we have to be concerned, not just about who we are and what we're doing, but what is to come. And it can be laborious at times. And a lot of times we don't ever see the fruit of our labor. But what we know beyond the shadow of a doubt is that the work that we do towards the Lord is not done in vain. Nehemiah does a remarkable job of bringing vision, faith, along with practicality, holding both of those. But both of those things without a plan is only a dream. And a plan without people who are going to fulfill that plan is only a wish. Which is why we need all of you to be a part of what it is that we are doing here at ZPC. And if we leave it up just to the professionals, if we decide every time that we have to give in to whatever that good excuse is about why we're too busy or 
just don't have enough to give in one way or another, then we will miss out on the incredible opportunity to build something that changes people's lives today and tomorrow. That, it seems to me, is the work that the Lord calls us to do right now. Tomorrow, or today, is the tomorrow that you talked about yesterday. How today are you going to follow Jesus and to carry out the mission that he has given to you? Let us pray. God, at times it is difficult to know how to take something from so long ago and bring it to what it means to us today. And yet, people are still people. And you continue to call your people into your work. You have decided to use us. I pray that you would help us to understand the weight, the responsibility, and the joy of participating in something that is so much greater than what we could ever do on our own. May we be willing to bring our necks into the mission of God. Amen. Mm -hmm.